I want to invite you to open a Bible this morning. We're in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus tells the story of God bringing his people out of the land of slavery, rescuing them to prepare them to hear his law, and ultimately to take them into the promised land. This is a story of good news. It's gospel, that God hears our cries, that God rescues us, that God provides atoning sacrifice for our sins. As the people have been led out of slavery in Egypt, they are being led to the mountain of God where they will receive his law. And yet the wilderness brings with it specific dangers, dangers that they will run out of water. And yet we've seen God miraculously provide. The danger that there won't be enough food to feed a multitude, it's a desert after all. And yet God miraculously daily provides for his people's needs. And yet one of the other dangers that they would have been familiar with in the ancient world is as you travel through a desert, is you are not only exposed to the elements, but you are exposed to your enemies. Do you have none of the protections that come with being close to civilization, a, a king who can muster an army to send it out to protect you? And so we find the people of God vulnerable in the wilderness. Listen as I read Exodus 17, verses 8 through 16. Exodus 17, beginning at verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they, put a stone, they, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Let's bow in prayer. Gracious God of heaven, we ask that you would speak with truth and clarity through your word, that as we, as we unpack and listen to your uh, protection and provision for your people, that we would see in this, in this message the truth of hope, that we find our salvation through your provision, through your rescue, that you are the God who wins the battle. Lord, for those that listen to your word today that, that have questions, Lord, those that are inquiring, I pray that they would find truth. Lord, those that, that have questions but, but, are, but are turning away from you, Lord, I pray that you would speak directly to them today, that you would expose each of our sin, that we might find forgiveness in the work of Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those who listen and, and long to follow after you, I pray that your word would provide comfort and hope today. Lord, we come because of who you are. We come because we need your truth. 
So Lord, help us to listen. We come praying in Jesus' name. Amen. In the chaos of a World War I battlefield, an American battalion is trapped behind enemy lines. Unable to make their position known, the 77th Division is under heavy bombardment, and unfortunately, many of the shells landing on them are being fired by their own side. They're beyond the range of radio signals, so they use their homing pigeons to deliver a message. Yes, only 100 years ago, the United States military was taking little canisters, writing a tiny message, curling it up, strapping it to the leg of a bird, and flying it across a battlefield. Now I have a computer here that connects to a cell tower which is linked to satellites in space. Major Charles Whitsley sends out message after message, pigeon after pigeon, only to watch these birds be intentionally shot down by German soldiers. They are down to their last messenger pigeon, cher ami. That's French for dear friend. And so they are pinning all of their hopes to this last bird. They are sending one last desperate prayer up into the heavens. The soldiers watch as Jeremy dodges German bullets, giving them hope of rescue until they watch him fall to the ground, shot in the chest. Against all odds, this little bird, after being shot, returns to the sky, flies 25 miles to deliver the message, and is kept alive by army medics. His momentous flight brought the rescue of 194 soldiers. General John Pershing honored the bird. He said, there isn't anything the United States can do that would be too much for this bird. And so under the care of his trainer, Cher Ami, who lost a leg during his heroic flight and was blinded in the flight, returned to America. Unfortunately, only a few months later, he died from his battle wounds. His little preserved body, at least the parts that are still left, can now be viewed at the Smithsonian. A lost battalion saved by the flight of a pigeon. It's an unexpected battlefield rescue. And yet the people of Israel here in Exodus 17 are rescued by an even more miraculous intervention. Although, if we've been paying any attention at all, this shouldn't be unexpected. We should, at this moment, when we read in, in Exodus 17, verse 8, the, the Malachites came and attacked the Israelites, be shaking our heads and thinking, poor Amalekites. This is the kind of fight you don't want to pick. I mean, the Amalekites are nothing compared to the armies of Pharaoh, and we know where Pharaoh's army is, at the bottom of the Red Sea, defeated by Yahweh. Israel sends up a prayer to heaven. Moses with his arms lifted high. The battle belongs to the Lord. We, we see the danger of, of the battle that comes when, when the Amalekites, were told, came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Now, perhaps this initial attack is, is, is just a, a raiding party or a scouting party because because Moses calls out to Joshua and says, you have a 
day to prepare. Or perhaps that we, that there, were, there were terms of surrender offered by the Amalekite army. When they arrive, they say, well, you must, you must give up before tomorrow or we will wipe you out. But, but whatever the reason for this, this slight delay here, we, we're given a, a day to prepare for the Israelites. Now, when we meet the Amalekites, they, they if, you, if you trace that word back through Scripture, you would remember that in Genesis 36, we have already met the man named Amalek. He was a grandson of Esau, Esau, the twin of Jacob. So part of the, the Abrahamic family, but, but not part of the chosen people of God. They've now left to, to raid in the wilderness. They, they there in the, in the historical record, not just from the Bible, but from ancient history, a, a people that, that spend their time on the fringes of society, gaining wealth and power by attacking outposts that are unprotected. And, and just imagine what this looks like to an Amalekite. Here come all of these Israelites and they are loaded down with gold and silver of Egypt. But when I look around, I don't see a single Egyptian soldier prepared to defend any of that gold or silver. Like, this is prime pickings. Like, we're going to get everything we want, and it's not going to cost us very much, which might be the reason that, they, that, that the Israelites are given an extra day to prepare. It's, just turn over all your gold and silver, and we'll let you keep wandering in the desert. And it's here that, that we meet for the first time in Scripture, Joshua. Because in verse 9, Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Joshua will become Moses' primary aide. He will actually become Israel's leader after the death of Moses. Now Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, but the next book after that is named after Joshua. And we'll learn later in Scripture actually in, in Numbers, the book of Numbers, what, what Joshua's name means. We're reminded that the very name Joshua means the Lord saves. It is Yahweh, Yahshua, Yahweh who saves. And so Joshua, though, only has one day to pull together his army. Now, but even before we get to the battle, you might here be a little bit uncomfortable. I, I mean, so far, the, the, the main people that have been at risk have been, have been God's people here in the wilderness. But now we have a plan coming from the top, coming from under heaven, that God himself, verse 16, will be at war against the Amalekites for the coming generations. And, and you might think here, okay, this is one of the big obvious, glaring problems with religion. Religious systems are prone to violence and to do it in God's name. But, but first, remember here the context in Exodus. Israel is only defending itself. It's the Amalekites who have come to attack and plunder. So, so most, even today, would say, well, in that situation, it is right to defend yourself against a violent attack. But, but here it's clear that, that God is the one who is, who is at war, and so this is a holy war of God. And, and, and from the Exodus, it will lead into the Promised Land where God will purposefully command his people to destroy their, their enemies, to defeat the enemies of God. 
Okay, I, I admit, there, there is a problem throughout history that, that people wrongly use the name of God and bring about violence. Because the, the violence that God allows, that God commands here in the Old Testament, is rather limited. It's tied to this one specific time period in Israel's history. Israel is, is, will have an army to take the promised land. To take the promised land from nations that are in evil rebellion against God. Some of their sins, including the sins of child sacrifice, will be listed in the scriptures. And God will explicitly tell the Israelites they are not allowed to keep a standing army. They are not allowed to pay soldiers to be at the ready. They are not allowed to take an army and expand the borders of their kingdom. Their work of war is limited here to this period of, of, of conquest, of taking the Holy Land under the leadership of Joshua. And actually, the warning that God gives, the, the commands that come in Deuteronomy 20, and, and one of the reasons that he says that, that, they w- that they must completely destroy the people that live in the promised land, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, is for their own spiritual protection. That the evil of these nations is being held up in, as, as an example in judgment. And God in Deuteronomy 20 warns the people of God. He says, you, you must completely destroy them. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods, and you will sin against the Lord your God. See, God is, is holding up these nations, these specific nations. It, it's, it's a limited number. Israel is not told, conquer the earth and destroy everyone. No, God had said he wouldn't bring that kind of judgment again. He put a rainbow in the sky to warn us that that kind of global flood of judgment wouldn't come again. But God is bringing judgment against each of these specific nations. And and really, it's a glimpse of the judgment that we all deserve. God, in in, in the very beginning of the Bible, in in Genesis 3, when, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he would have been right to stop there to bring about judgment, even a judgment of death that our sin deserves because sin is rebellion against the good and gracious creator of the universe. It's, it's cosmic treason worthy of punishment. I mean, the fact that, that God is gracious at all is testament to his mercy, that he doesn't judge every one of us immediately. And so Joshua has but a day to pull together an army to fight the Amalekites. And when we, when we look at the battle plan, we realize that, that, wait, the plan here is to gather a handful of men who, who have maybe at a minimum just a small amount of, tra- or at a maximum just a, a minimal amount of training. And then the plan in verse 9 is, Moses tells Joshua, you go and fight them. I'm going to stand at the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Could we be more specific, Moses, about how you think we could defeat the Amalekites? Like, could we gain some sort of strategic advantage using the terrain? You know, could, could I be at the top of the hill so that we kind of come running down the hill at them? Like, rather than just you, could, is there something else we could do here that would give us the, the possibility of surviving? But, but notice, notice Joshua doesn't, doesn't offer any of those complaints because what does Moses standing at the top of the, the hill with the staff of God in his hands say to Joshua? 
What, what is the staff? A symbol of God's presence and power with them. This is the staff which brought about the judgments against the people of Egypt, against Pharaoh himself, against the Nile, the staff which, which turned water into blood. It's the staff which was held high when the waters of the Red Sea were split. And so, so we're actually getting the full battle plan. The Lord is on your side. God himself will gain victory because he has commanded me to stand and to lift my hands, to, to stand there with the staff of God, with his power. And, and we, we notice then that even, even the details of, of how the battle unfolds, as we, as we see the, the armies push back and forth against each other, it's all related to the posture of Moses. I mean, it, it sounds bizarre in verse 11 as we read it. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. What in the world do Moses' hands have to do with the swords in the hands of the Israelites? Again, it's a reminder that it is not the strength of Joshua, not the, the military valor of the, the men on the battlefield that will win this battle, but it is God himself who will fight. And that the hands lifted high, it, that's, that's a posture that Scripture gives us is, a, is an appropriate posture for prayer. That you're calling out to heaven. Ver, verse 14 will, or verse, verse 16 will say that, that the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. It's as if Moses is reaching up to heaven and holding on to God's throne and saying, God, this is your battle. So as long as he was in the posture that showed that Israel was trusting in the Lord, well, then who was winning? The people of God. But when his hands grew tired, and, and of course, you cannot stand, staff or no staff, with your hands in the air all day long. This is the kind of thing that they, they make people on reality television do to win a meal is stand with your arms lifted high. You will eventually tire, no matter how strong you are. And so, so Aaron and her come to his aid. Aaron, of course, the, the older brother of Moses who will become the high priest for Israel. Her, whose name is repeated through Scripture, but, but perhaps it's just a, a common name in the ancient world, or in ancient Israel. And so they, they put a stone under Moses so that in his exhaustion, when he sits, they can stand and hold his hands steady. Because this is a sign of their dependence upon God alone to win the battle. It's saying, God, you have to do this. It's both a posture of prayer and even a symbol of surrender. I, th th there's nothing in my hands. There is no sword here. The only thing I hold on to is the throne of God, the staff of God, showing that he is the one who will gain victory. And so ultimately... We read that, that as Aaron and Hur hold up the, the hands of, of Moses, we read in verse 13 then that Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. And so God wants this moment to be remembered. He gives the direct command in verse 14 to Moses to, to write this down. Make sure Joshua reads it. Because Joshua may come back from the battlefield with, with tales of great valor. The men who fought alongside him will have moments in the, in the battle in which, which their courage was tested, in which their blood was shed, in which even their, their brothers in arms fell at their side. But make sure Moses, or make sure Joshua reads this so that he remembers who gained the victory. 
so that the people of God remember that it was the Lord who did this. And let him remember that even though some of the Amalekites fled the battlefield and, and the Amalekite army was not completely wiped out, that there will still be threat from the Amalekites. He builds an altar to the Lord. An altar, a, a place in which you, you stop to give thanks to God. A place in which you offer sacrifice to God to show that you are a sinner who needs the forgiveness that comes from God. But then it serves as a, a monument that admits you are fully and completely dependent upon who God is. The altar, the, the appropriate Old Testament place of worship for the people of God. And, and look at what he calls this monument. Look at what he names the altar. Yahweh is my banner. The banner would be the signal pole or the, even the flag held up in the midst of battle. The, the regimental colors around which a, a, unit, a unit gathers. It's a, the flag moves forward, so the army has moved forward. As the flag gets pushed back or, or has to retreat, then, then you would know where the army is going. And so the, the banner that was lifted high in this battle is not in the hands of Joshua or one of his soldiers. No, Moses naming the altar is reminding the people who won this battle? The Lord. The Lord is my banner. He is the source of Israel's strength and hope. He is the one whose name is lifted high for the, the people to see. It, it's his power. And, and remember, we've seen this already in Exodus. Every time God showed his power against Pharaoh, it was so that Pharaoh would know what kind of God the Israelites served. That he was not merely a, a provincial God, that he was not merely a God of the enslaved, but he was the God of the whole earth, the God of, of heaven and earth. But in, but in saying, Yahweh is my banner, it's not merely that, that I, can, I can look up and put my hope in Yahweh. That when I'm, when I'm in the midst of the battle, I can be reminded that, that God is on my side. No, the banner goes with you into battle. It's not merely that you look to the top of the hill and see that, that Moses still holds the staff of God, that, that God is watching from the sidelines as this battle progresses. No, the Lord is my banner means that Yahweh has entered the fray. It is God who has drawn the sword. It is God who gained the victory over the Amalekites. Moses calls the altar, the Lord is my battle, because when his hands were lifted up to the throne of God, God entered the fray and fought for Israel. See, God does not remain distant from us. God did not abandon his people. Enter the human story. Enter human history that Jesus, the true son of God, was born of the Virgin Mary. That Jesus was the one who who went to the cross to do battle for us. The book of Colossians describes the, the cross as a place of battle, a place of triumph and victory. Now, of course, that sounds foolish even today, but certainly sounded foolish in the ancient world. The, the cross, the place of execution, was a place of shame in the ancient world. I mean, the Romans designed the cross to completely humiliate an enemy. A man stripped of everything that belonged to him 
spread onto a cross and nailed so that he would slowly suffocate to death. It looks like there couldn't be victory there. That's such a horrific death that, that a Roman couldn't be executed in that way. You had to do something much more humane to kill a citizen. But an enemy, a barbarian, someone leading a rebellion, someone like Jesus who claimed to be a king, when of course the Romans knew that there was no king but Caesar. And yet the Apostle Paul, in describing the work of Jesus on the Christ, describes it first in in personal and spiritual terms. He tells the Colossian church that you were dead in your sins. That your sins brought you to the place of judgment where you had brought upon yourself death. And in Colossians 2, verse 13, though, we have the hope that God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. That it's in the cross that you gain personal victory because Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. That Jesus took your sins away, nailing your sins to the cross. And then Colossians 3.15 says that, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, so having disarmed Satan and and his demons, having disarmed the, the, the earthly authorities set up against God's purposes, having disarmed the powers and authorities, God made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. See, the cross becomes a place not just of personal victory, but of cosmic victory, where God is saying, everyone that has set themselves up against my purposes has lost. And yet we still think, but but he's dead. Jesus died on the battlefield. The Lord is my banner. This this actually answers the question we asked earlier. What does holy war look like today? Can you take up the sword in the name of Jesus and slaughter enemies with the sword? No, because how does Jesus defeat his enemies? By giving his own life on the cross. See, the cross forces us to put away our swords. Even when Jesus' followers pulled out their swords, swinging them wildly, Jesus said, put away your swords. Don't you know that I have legions of angels at my disposal? And yet the victory that Jesus brings is a victory of of shame and humility. And yet it's a victory that proves God's great love for us. And of course, the cross is not the end because you have been made alive with Christ who was raised from the dead. Jesus entered the fray to die in your place. Our prayers lifted up to heaven have been heard. God answered Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Historians tell us that 14 black soldiers were awarded medals of honor as eight regiments of the United States colored troops assaulted fortified Confederate lines over rough terrain and withering fire. Now, more than a third of those citations awarded that day reference heroic actions surrounding the regiment's flag. And actually, that shows itself across the entirety of the Civil War. That when the United States government gave out medals of honor, of the 1,500 earned, 460 
were related to the flag, which seems to us is, is some sort of patriotism. No. It's because the banner that goes into battle is, is not merely a symbol of a regiment's pride, letting the army know which way to go, where to fight. A, a, a historian explains that, that soldiers who carried the flag died at much higher rates than the soldiers around them because the enemy targeted them in hopes that bringing down the banner would halt the battle. If the flag falls, then no one knows where to go. Defending the colors was important to a regiment, and losing them, a historian says, brought shame. The color guard were selected by the unit commander and were among the bravest men of his regiment. They also paid a tremendous price, and yet more men came forward to carry and protect the flag. On September 14, 1864, the Union soldiers charged into battle. Sergeant Major Christian A. Fleetwood of the 4th United States Colored Infantry Division recorded in his diary that day this simple phrase, charged with the 6th at daylight and got used up, saved colors. His terse reflections only hint at the challenges he faced. He was a college-educated soldier in Christian Fleetwood who would survive the war and go on to serve his community in government positions. Christian Fleetwood, Sergeant Major Fleetwood, received the Medal of Honor for his actions that day, so he later elaborated what the battle looked like. Early in the rush, one of the sergeants went down, a bullet cutting his flagstaff. The other sergeant, Arthur B. Hilton, caught up the flag and pressed forward with them both. It was a deadly hailstorm of bullets, and it was not long before Hilton also went down, shot through the leg. As he fell, he held up the flags and shouted, Bull, and we pressed forward into battle. In a smoke-filled battlefield, brave soldiers picked up the banner any time it fell. And as they pressed forward, the flag breached the enemy lines. The unit succeeded in battle. Victory was secured, and yet the cost was high. The banner that flies in the battle for Israel is Yahweh himself. Our banner, our hope, our assurance of victory is Jesus Christ our Lord. He charged into battle. Not, not merely knowing that he would be a target for the enemy, but knowing that he, death has been conquered. The cross lifts high the victory of Jesus Christ. And so today, like Moses, lift high your hands in prayer. Lift high your hands in surrender to the Lord, in submission to his authority, in praise to his glory, in prayer for his rescue, Yahweh is my banner. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that when confronted with our sin, you were merciful. 
God, that you yielded and did not immediately bring upon us the judgment we deserved. And more than that, we thank you that you provided a way for our rescue. Lord, here in Exodus, through the ministry of of your intervention, let us lift hands in surrender. Where our hearts are filled with joy, let us lift our hands to give praise to you. For you are the God who hears our prayers. You have met our needs in Jesus Christ. And so we lift high his name, the name of the one who gained victory on the cross, who proved your power in his resurrection from the dead. Father in heaven, we give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.